Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. If I hear Matt Hancock say once more that GP and hospital services are looking after all those who need the NHS, I will scream. It's Thursday, mate. It's not Super Thursday. We're not in (laughs) Virginia, are we? You know, what's going on? For a while, your line was, I don't need to know what a podcast is. I am one. (laughs) It is monolithic in its culture, the BBC. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Now, this isn't any old trip to Planet Normal Space Travellers. For co-pilot Pearson and I blasted off for the first time in late May 2020, and Planet Normal hasn't missed a week since. So it turns out we've now reached, drumroll, this, our 50th episode. Now, I'm not sure what's about to happen, but to mark this special occasion, our wonderful Planet Normal producers, Louisa and Isabel, and our editor and navigator-in-chief, Theo, tell me they've organised some kind of surprise for the top of the show. (laughs) So I don't know what's coming, and nor does co-pilot Pearson. But then again, she never does. (laughs) But here it is. Hello, I'm Ian Dale. Well done, Liam. Well done, Alison, on reaching 50 episodes. Um, the title of the podcast, Planet Normal, is totally inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, there's not much normal about you two, is there? But many congratulations. Hey. Hello, it's Sue Cook here, just floating past your capsule to say congratulations, co-pilots Alison and Liam, on the 50th episode of Planet Normal. I was very honoured to be a guest on your show a couple of months back. I can honestly say, actually, that you feel like a couple of really good friends to me now, even though we've never met. To Planet Normal from Planet Alan Johnson, Luther and former politician. (laughs) Our first guest. Congratulations on your 50th. You are quite definitely the best combination since Arnott and Fleming. Hello, Alison and Liam. This is a message from Robert Schuyler sending you my love and congratulations. For me personally, it has been a memorable journey. And for all of your supporters, the wit and wisdom from yourselves and your contributors has been a breath of fresh air. Thank you and long live Planet Normal. This is your friend, colleague and previous guest, Lionel Shriver. Happy 50th anniversary, Alison and Liam. We hear so much about the need to protect the planet, and the planet I most want to protect is planet normal. Whenever I hear that introductory do 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 do, my heart explodes. With joy. <laughs> wow, oh. Ian Dale, we are normal, Ian. Of course, we are. 
<laughs> well, I try my best to be normal, but there's not much we can do about you, Halligan, is there really? <laughs> and Robert Styler, surely our most incredible guest ever. I know. Wonderful, wonderful, Robert. Can I just say, Liam, that in in this extraordinary voyage of 50 episodes, I think I've seen you twice very briefly during that period. And I have never met Theodora Leloudis, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bujar. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it, to think that, that this has all been achieved virtually and, and we're so grateful to the people who explained to me how to turn the computer on and even what a podcast is <laughs> even what a podcast for, for, is. for a while your line was i don't need to know what a podcast is i am one just to be in podcast i know but it's been brilliant and haven't we been blessed with wonderful guests to have spoken to all those people and i, and I know people have felt it's been a sort of sense of family that's got going really a place you can go and have a laugh with friends when things have been pretty pretty bleak and strange really before we get into this episode, we must just say thank you to Alan Johnson, our first Planet Normal guest, the incredible postman turned home secretary, Lionel Shriver, the fantastic novelist who wants to save Planet Normal. And thank you to Theo, Izzy and, and Louisa for putting together that tribute. Yeah. It's really touched our hearts. But on with the show. Is today really Super Thursday or just a damp squib, Alison? Over 48 million of us have the right to vote today, Thursday the 6th of May, in the largest set of local elections since 1973. Polls are open across 143 English councils, some 189 Scottish and Welsh parliamentary and assembly seats are up for grabs, 15 regional mayors, including London, the London Assembly itself, and of course, a Westminster by-election in the northeast, one-time Labour stronghold of Hartlepool, in what is in total the first real test of public opinion, since the 2019 general election. Now, Alison, your latest Telegraph column is a corker, covering in particular your latest thoughts on the NHS and in particular our GPs. But before we get to that, and mindful that the polls are open and we need to observe electoral law, how do you see these elections going, particularly in that eye-catching red wall contest in Hartlepool? Well, before we launch into all that, Liam, can I just say the most exciting news of the week, as far as I'm concerned, is that Bill Gates is back on the market. Now, <laughs> do you fancy Velma's chances with Bill? He does like a girl in specs, a nerd in specs. <laughs> and I tell you what, it'd be a good financial move, wouldn't it? It would shore up <laughs> Velma's financial position and treat. So let's just, let's just hope that Bill comes calling. You can have five rather than four-digit haircuts. <laughs> We'll throw in Shaggy as well if Bill if Bill is interested. So yeah, Super Thursday. I'm going to be really honest with you, Halligan. I I don't feel like voting. In fact, I wonder if quite a lot of people will feel like me and whether there might not be a very low turnout today. I just have a kind of feeling. Look, the government deserves enormous credit for the vaccine rollout, you know, but lockdown has been going on for 3,000 <laughs> days and I'm pretty fed up now. I've had enough of politicians in my life. I've certainly had enough of scientists in my life. I'm not sure whether there won't be a kind of, you know, a sort of apathy bordering on distaste. I, I could be wrong, but I mean, maybe the big contest will get people out, but I'd be quite surprised if the local council elections don't see uh, people not really bothering. I mean, I think that, as you said, I mean, this Hartlepool by-election, 
which is, you know, very, very interesting. Labour's been fearing a red wall meltdown. But I have to say, Liam, that it doesn't fear a red wall meltdown in Hartlepool sufficiently to install a Labour candidate who isn't an ardent Remainer. Dr. Paul or Dr. Paul Williams. I mean, you have to hand it to, let's just remind ourselves, co-pilot, that Hartlepool in the 2015 general election, UKIP came a close second and Hartlepool voted leave by 69.5%. One of the highest in the country, wasn't it? Highest in the country. So if you were uh, Keir Starmer, might you not think of installing, I mean, I obviously politics isn't my game, but might you not think of putting in a candidate whose views might actually tally with the local? So, yes, Hartlepool, very, very interesting result. If the Conservatives did win today, that would be the only the second time in 38 years that a ruling party has snatched a seat from the opposition at a by-election. And that would then turn the spotlight on Keir Starmer's leadership, which has not been looking tremendously convincing anyway. What do you reckon, co-pilot? I think that's right. We've got to be careful how we comment, don't we, Alison, as journalists, because the polls are open and uh, electoral laws apply. So we can't comment too much and be seen to steer voters in this discussion. Not that planet normal voters need steering anyway there. So we won't listen to us, an independent bunch. But I think what's at stake here is very much uh, jobs and livelihoods post-Brexit. The government will be boasting that the North East, Teesside, which includes Hartlepool, of course, just across the water, is to become probably Britain's biggest free port. That should attract a lot more inward investment. We've had the Treasury committing to move part of its campus up to Darlington, just inland from Teesside, of course. And Ben Houchen, the local Teesside mayor, uh, whose, whose position is also up for grabs today, is widely seen to be quite a dynamic figure. On the other hand, as you say, this is a Labour stronghold. It's Peter Mandelson's old seat. It's been Labour for a very long time. So I do think this is a very interesting contest. And of course, there are other candidates, the Lib Dems up there, the modern incarnation of the SDP. And we'll come on to that. So I think if Labour do lose Hartlepool, it will very much put the spotlight on Keir Starmer. And this broader question of identity politics on the one hand, which appeals to Labour's metropolitan elite and uh, London-based Labour people and the university towns and so on, versus actually standing up for working-class people and promoting jobs and livelihoods. And some would say, and I think with some fairness, that Labour has found it very difficult in recent years to straddle those two sides. But as Tony Blair proved, and the last time Labour Party... Uh, won a general election was 16 years ago today, the day of recording, the 5th of May, when Tony Blair beat Michael Howard. Oh, wow. Okay. Under Tony Blair, Labour were able to forge that crucial centre-left coalition, including working-class voters, including progressive-slash-liberal, more affluent voters, if you like. But Keir Starmer does seem some way away from that now as we face this big election day in the UK. Yes, Starmer said that he fears a vaccine bounce for the Conservatives. And you can obviously see that whatever all the troubles have been in the past year, there's been, you know, there's this fantastic sense that the vaccine campaign programme has gone terribly well. I think there's about 
65.7% of all adults, Liam, have been vaccinated now and 29.4% have had two vaccines. So that's incredible. And on Tuesday, there were four COVID deaths reported in England and Wales. So things are looking very good from that point of view. But my attitude would be that in terms of Starmer, that if he had presented an opposition, you know, I interviewed Lawrence Fox, the the actor turned reclaimed candidate in London. And Lawrence Fox's point was that we haven't had an opposition. Now, if Starmer was going into these elections with Labour having expressed concern about the harms lockdown could have done to ordinary working people, I think he'd have a very, very good story to tell. But if the um, main party's positions on lockdown are indistinguishable, what's going to persuade them to change their minds? We've also got the other big talking point today will be Scotland. A Planet Normal listener in Scotland actually told me that the result won't be fully in until Saturday lunchtime, which is which is worth noting. And where we are is if the SNP gets a narrow majority, Nicola Sturgeon can join forces with the Greens and then might be able to, this, this will be the huge outcome of it, will that be enough for Boris Johnson to keep saying no to another referendum? And if the SNP were to achieve an overall majority, then obviously it becomes much harder for the government in Westminster to say, no, sorry, you can't have one. I think there's a really interesting conundrum for the Tories in Scotland. Obviously, Boris Johnson isn't popular north of the border. For many Scots, he's precisely the kind of English politician they don't like. That's not to say that the Tories aren't doing quite well. They've replaced Labour as the, the, the second party, of course, in Scotland, particularly under Ruth Davison's previous leadership, but they're also doing reasonably well in more recent months. But if Scotland do vote Sturgeon in with a majority and Johnson is forced to grant another referendum in Scotland, even though the most recent one was in 2014, the independence referendum, and it was meant to be for a generation, then I think what he should do is before the referendum, he should negotiate a deal with Scotland, because I think it's in the negotiation of that deal that the real difficulties will emerge. This is not like the UK leaving the European Union, though that was complicated enough, right, uh, after all those years since 1973 when we joined. This is a union that goes back to the 1700s and even earlier, hugely intertwined defence capabilities and all the rest of it. And I would say as an economist, when you look at this situation objectively, Scotland gets a tremendous deal from being in the United Kingdom. The amount of government spending per head north of the border via the Barnet formula massively outstrips government spending per head in England. Yes. And does it really make sense to leave the single market that accounts for the vast bulk, the lion's share of your trade? That is the single market between Scotland and the rest of the UK. And I wonder if when it comes to it, even though people may vote for Sturgeon, when it comes to voting in a referendum, I don't think the polls are demonstrating the real support for independence. I think the real support for independence is quite a bit lower than we can glean from support for the SNP. 
It certainly seems that the successful vaccine rollout compared to what's been happening in the EU, I think that's been a very good point in the government's favour, hasn't it? Because with Sturgeon saying, oh, we should have remained in the EU, and in fact, Scotland did vote quite heavily remain, didn't it, I think? But now, if we were still in the EU, then we probably would have not had this speed with which our vaccine programme has been delivered. So that's another feather in Boris's cap. It will be interesting to see how Alex Salmon fares north of the border with his Mm. new Alva party. It'll be interesting to see how that dynamic on the independent side plays out. And it'll be interesting to see how your friend Mark Drayford in Wales gets on uh, (laughs) uh, as well. He's no friend of mine, co-pilot, I tell you. I mean, you know, I'd happily... uh, drop him off the cliffs in Gower. But sadly, the old um, misery guts may may well live to see another day. But aside from all these elections, Alison, I wanted to focus on something that you wrote in The Telegraph in your latest column, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes to this episode. We've had lots of GPs contacting Planet Normal over our last 50 episodes. We've even read out some of those emails and had GPs on the show, albeit with their voices changed anonymously because they fear for their careers. But you've really issued a clarion call to the nation's GPs in your column, haven't you? Yes, well, I was inspired, Lee, and Planet Normal listeners will remember very affecting correspondence we've had with a lovely man called Nick Stokes. Now, Nick wrote to us actually back in November. Nick was a former chair of an NHS hospital trust, and he was warning Planet Normal about this, that the NHS was becoming the COVID health service. And then very sadly, a little while later, Nick wrote to us again to say that he and his wife, Joy, had fallen foul of the COVID health service, ironically and tragically. Joy had had very severe pain. Just just to fill in a bit of background, Joy had had cancer 15 years ago. She'd had severe pain in the summer, but had been unable to see a GP. The surgery told her to self-refer to a physio. The physio wouldn't even see her. You know, they told her to do exercises that they sent her online. Joy's pain got much worse. The receptionist still said it wasn't an emergency and no, she couldn't have a scan. So they were going back and forwards, getting increasingly dismayed. Eventually, Nick demanded pain relief for for Joy, his wife of 46 years. And the GP then did see her. And he actually said, Liam, this is very interesting, when he saw Joy Stokes in person, he said how dreadful she looked. Well, there's a surprise because Mm. the scan revealed that cancer in her leg and her thigh and she had a major operation almost immediately but very tragically the cancer had spread rapidly into her brain and and it was Joy's funeral last Thursday a week ago and Nick's been in almost constant contact with us Liam uh, she was 69 years old so many many years ahead of her and they were obviously planning their retirement and so on Nick wanted uh, me to share their story so that this very upsetting, unnecessary death wouldn't be pointless. And so what I decided to focus on in my Telegraph column this week is have GPs, uh, or also NHS England, decided to seize the opportunity of the crisis to accelerate the move to digital working? And what I've been hearing from readers and from Planet Normal listeners is that they can only get phone appointments if they're lucky. Very, very hard to see a doctor in person, even though we see, don't we, that Joy's case proves that relying on digital means and on Zoom calls is extremely dangerous. And lots of listeners and 
Telegraph readers have been telling me unbelievable things, Liam, like they can't have their medication renewed unless they take their own blood pressure. (laughs) (laughs) One listener wrote to Planet Normal and said that her 94-year-old mother had been told to take a a photograph of the tumour on her leg and send it to the GP surgery. And and our listener wrote back extremely angrily and said that her 94-year-old mother strangely didn't have a smartphone and was incapable of taking a photograph. So before we come to you, can I just say what Nick said? Because it was so clear and angry. Nick said, if I hear Matt Hancock say once more that GP and hospital services are looking after all those who need the NHS, I will scream. If I hear him boasting that GPs can now provide the same service through telephone contact, I will throw something at the TV. The truth is very different. So, yes, a very uh, angry, impassioned piece by me. And sometimes as a journalist, Liam, you can ask the readers and the listeners, can't you? What do you think? Do you think it's acceptable that you won't be able to see your GP face to face? Well, you've said it all, Alison, and it is a corker of a column. And I'd encourage all Planet Normal listeners to read it. I'd just end this section by saying that Joyce Stokes was 69 years old. Her husband, Nick, said it was a struggle to get the numbers down to 30 for a COVID-compliant funeral service for somebody as popular as Joy. And as you report in your column, Nick says it's a mark of the woman that her very last visit, when she was clearly dying herself, was to console a friend in the village whose cancer was also terminal. Hi, listeners. It's Barney Gordon here popping into this podcast to tell you all about another Telegraph series called Briny Gordon's Mad World. It's a podcast in which I chat to household names and unsung heroes about their mental health, from Stacey Solomon to therapists and doctors on the front line. We talk about looking after ourselves as we heave ourselves out of lockdown and remind you that it's totally normal to feel weird. Search Mad World wherever you usually download your podcasts. Now, last week, we interviewed one of The Telegraph's best-loved writers, Janet Daly. You can catch up with Janet and all 49 of our other previous Planet Normal stairways, from spymaster Sir Richard Dearlove to soul legend Patty Boulay, on our Planet Normal archive. Now, our 50th guest is another hugely popular writer from our sister publication, The Spectator. Rod Liddell was born in south-east London, the son of a train driver, but he grew up in Middlesbrough. Rod's talent and drive saw him scale the heights of British journalism. And despite his self-confessed anarchic streak, in the late 90s, Rod became editor of the BBC's flagship Today programme, where he spent five successful years before resigning, following a row over comments he wrote in The Guardian. Since then, Rod's become one of the UK's most revered columnists. Fearless, funny, some say offensive. He has wide political tastes and has been campaigning in Hartlepool in recent weeks for the new incarnation of the SDP. Now, I spoke with Rod before polling stations opened across the UK, and I started by asking him, what kind of chance does Labour have of holding on in Hartlepool? Somewhere between uh, nil and 5%. The latest polling figures suggest that the Conservatives are going to have a landslide. I mean, only two weeks ago, we were being told that it was going to be a very, very tightly run thing. 
and that the Conservatives might win by a small margin, perhaps a thousand. Uh, the latest polling figures suggest that that's a, a considerable underestimate. They don't have a particularly prepossessing candidate, but the disaffection with Labour up here is vast and growing. Uh, and it's not just about Brexit. I, I mean, this is one of the fallacies as seen by London that, you know, Hartlepool, the most Brexit constituency in the country, uh, is going to reject Labour for it, for its uh, pro-Remainer stance. That's part of it, but it's it's nowhere near the whole of it. There's, there's a whole cultural issue there. The, the same kind of cultural issue, which means that uh, poor people don't vote Democrat in the United States anymore. I mean, what do you think it is that Labour are getting so wrong, Rod? Obviously, you know, you grew up in, in the northeast in Middlesbrough. You know the area well. But beyond Hartlepool, what's the great disconnect between the Labour Party, which we need? We need a, a functioning Labour Party that can win elections to keep our democracy healthy, don't we? What are they getting so wrong? Uh, they're getting the culture wrong. They, they forget that, that and they've nodded towards this in recent weeks, of course, but they're forgetting, for example, that northern working class people tend to be patriotic. They like their country. They also like their community. They like traditional family values. They don't go in for identitarian politics. They think that it's divisive and and the preserve of those who have nothing else to worry about. They, they were an economy rebuilt, but they don't buy into any of the cultural stuff which the Labour Party promulgates at the moment. And, and it's, it's slightly ironic that in, in attempting to make the Labour Party more electable, which Keir Starmer has tried to do, and with some success, he's certainly a, a, a better leader than Jeremy Corbyn. The problem I is... I don't know about his boxing technique. Yeah, his boxing Alison, technique. Alison reckons she'd do a better job with that punch bag. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Probably true, bless him. I feel sorry for him sometimes. But he's got the wrong end of the stick. You know, when, when John McDonnell unveiled all those rather drastic and quite left-wing uh, economic proposals in 2019, there was some appetite for them up here, some appetite for them amongst the poor. Things like rail renationalisation, free broadband. Yeah, absolutely. Higher taxes, all that kind of stuff. Nationalised the grouse mullers. That's one that grabbed hold of me, you know, and we have them near where I am. Absolutely bang on. But he's kind of got rid of that but kept the cultural stuff, which the, the voters really do not like. So, so now there's nothing to attract them to Labour. It's, it's, it's very sad, and it's why I've been up here. I've been campaigning for the Social Democratic Party in the hope that we might replace Labour as the main opposition party. And we've got a hell of a long way to go, but, but we're growing. We come on to you and, and the SDP, the modern-day version of the SDP, but just before we do, Rod, why do you think it is that during lockdown we really have disappeared down this wormhole of identity politics, haven't we? Huge rows about race, about gender. Is it because the media has just become obsessed with Twitter? It doesn't get out more? It doesn't talk to ordinary people? Or is there something broader going on? Well, no, I, th I think that point's very important. You know, I, I don't think for a single moment that the BLM taking the knee stuff would have been a runner if there had been fans in the football grounds. And if there had been fans yeah. in the football grounds, we saw what happened when there was only 2,000 at Millwall and a few thousand at West Ham and a few thousand at Colchester. It was rejected, rejected out of hand. They were jeering and, and discouraging players from taking the knee yeah, at the sign right. of Black Lives Matter. They also did that, of course, uh, at one of the first soccer matches in the USA after lockdown. 
I think in Texas, Dallas, one of the Dallas teams. So you're right, all this identity stuff has thrived because you cannot hear the voice of the people. And the, the, the people just don't buy this stuff, not, not remotely. So, so, so I think there's that. And then I think, you know, there's the other side of it, which is the overwhelming virtue signaling of, of corporations and institutions, such as English Heritage, for example, uh, but also the advertising corporations. All this, all the, all this stuff, they, they, they buy into a creed which is believed in by about 10% of the population and foisted upon a frankly bemused population, the rest of the population. It, it's, a, it's an absurdity. And one would hope that once we emerge from this COVID lockdown, that a, that a certain common sense will, uh, will reestablish itself. If you're advising Boris Johnson, Rod, I mean, it's it's not a job you're likely to be offered, but, you know, hey, who knows? What would you say in terms of how he should respond to this identity politics stuff? Because a lot of Planet Normal listeners write in saying, why doesn't he counter it? This is clearly nuts. Why doesn't he have a stronger response yeah. to, as you say, a creed that is a, a minority interest? I, I think he's caught. There have been indications that he was going to fight this. And there have been a few, and you hear Kemi Badenoch and Priti Patel taking a line which is very, very counter to the woke agenda. And, of course, you also saw the excellent Tony Sewell's report into race and ethnic disparities in the country. Yeah, he came on Planet Normal and, and yeah, talked a, about he's it. a great man, a great man, Tony, a great man. Yeah. So they have done that. But I think it's cool. I, I mean, the Conservative Party has been, and we've had in Parliament for the last... 30 years, a liberal consensus. You know, it was a liberal consensus over Brexit. Uh, it was a liberal elite consensus over woke issues like that. So there are plenty of people within the Conservative Party who actually buy into this utter crap. And you can see it, you know, there have been rows recently over nomenclature in, 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 the, in the census report. Uh, should we be calling people men or women or neither of the above? So the, the Conservative Party, so to a certain degree, buys into this, and it has done through the Secretary of State for Education's office, though not Gavin Williamson so much, but previous Secretaries of State for Education have approved entirely the rollout of gender teaching, largely sponsored by Stonewall, in our schools. So that's the problem. Boris has to kind of get a grip in the same way that he did over Brexit, and say, look, this stuff doesn't really not appeal to our traditional conservative voters, but it certainly doesn't appeal to the to the so-called red wall voters who we won over last time. Talking of Boris getting a grip or, or, or not, tell us about the campaigning you've been doing in Hartlepool. The polls are open as this podcast goes to air, so we've got to be a little bit careful of electoral law and so on. Yeah. But why did you join the SDP, Rod, and how does the modern-day SDP relate to the party of, well, Shirley Williams and Dr David Owen? Well, it relates to Dr David Owen. It doesn't relate very much to Shirley Williams because the last thing we are is liberal. We're left-wing on economic issues. We want reindustrialization, higher taxes, and to reduce inequality between rich and poor, north and south. But by the same token, we are fans of the nation. We're fans of the community. We're fans of the family, the traditional family. Uh, and patriotism, and a sense of history, a pride in our nation. And the reason I joined it is because by chance, as it happened, I happened to see their new declaration, the, the SDP's new declaration. And I thought, my God, there is absolutely nothing in there with which I disagree. 
Um, and so I joined it. It's unusual for you. Very, you very unusual. You disagree with people for a living. Yeah, it's it's very unusual, mate. Uh, and um, so I joined up. And I think at the time I joined up, we had maybe three or 400 people in the party. We now have 2,000, and we're, we're beginning to grow. We need money. We need a bit of a breakthrough. But this is a long-term project to replace Labour. You need an oligarch. Yeah, we could, we could do if you know any, Lee. <laughs> As the fans at Millwall often say, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. We, we need... We need a bit of help, but otherwise we're just building from the base, you know. We haven't really spoken, Rod, since lockdown began. To what extent is the vaccine rollout playing out on the streets of Hartlepool? To what extent do you think the vaccine rollout is playing out across this Super Thursday? Of course, we've got elections all over the country. Well, one one thing, Liam, it's Thursday, mate. It's not Super Thursday. We're not, we're not in, <laughs> Sorry. We're not in Forgive Virginia, me. are we? You know, what, what's going on here? I, I know. <laughs> we, can, we can pretend. We can pretend. Um, I think that if, if, you're a, if you're a Hartlepool voter, you look at your decision to vote uh, leave in the referendum in 2016, and you listen to the revulsion with which that was greeted by the South and the Remainers, and then you look at the vaccine rollout and you look at the creation of the free port of Teesside, which will be both Teesport and Hartlepool and will be the biggest port in the country and is promised to bring in somewhere like 18,000 jobs and will eventually rival Rotterdam. You know? And you think, well, I think we got that right, didn't we? Where, where's the <laughs> yeah. downside here? I, they don't see one. And the vaccine rollout has undoubtedly helped. Now, you know, there are areas of the northeast and Hartlepool is one of them whereas there's a somewhat pugnacious attitude adopted towards the virus, uh, as typified by one bloke I spoke to in a pub uh, in my hometown of Gisborough who said, the virus comes near me, I'll f- kick its head in. <laughs> there is that rather... Sounds reasonable. It uh, sounds reasonable. <laughs> there is this rather uh, uh, pugnacious attitude towards it. But nonetheless, people have been getting their vaccines and they're fine. And the, the virus is in the retreat. It feels up here much more than it does in London, very post-COVID, despite the fact that the pubs aren't properly open inside and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I I think it's an enormous boost for for Boris and the party. And you have to say, you know, um, and I'm not a conservative, it's a kind of deserved boost. They have done very well on that. Even if in the first four months of the pandemic, they seemed uh, slipshod, U-turnish, flip-floppy and irresolute. It would be the third time, I think, in, in 60-odd years a sitting government's made a by-election gain. I think, I think it's four. Uh, the last one was Copeland. That's I right, think. in the early 80s, right? And I think there was Mitchum and Mordham in the early... Yeah. God, we're nerds, aren't we? We should get out more, Rod Little. What are we doing? <laughs> yes, it's pathetic. Nerding on about by-election statistics. Yeah. I, what, the thing is, it's it's going to... I mean, I, I half wondered in a rather Machiavellian way if Labour had selected their candidate for Harlepool, Dr. Paul Williams, who's a nice bloke and a clever bloke, but an arch remainer. I mean, even by Labour standards, yeah. really, really anti-Brexit. If they did it to kind of minimise what they saw as the uh, the furor once they got stuffed in the polls. So they could blame the candidate rather than the party. Yeah, to blame the candidate and Brexit rather than the party and Keir, uh, obviously. But those votes to the Labour Party are not coming back because there is such a disparity between the aspirations of the Labour Party, which, which if you look at its 
parliamentary gains at the last election, 2019, were, were the likes of Cambridge, Oxford, and Putney. You know, yeah. that's where they're gaining seats. And there's a case for that. There's a case for a party which represents somewhere in the region of 18 to 20% of the population uh, who are affluent and liberal and metropolitan. There is a place for that. But you can't have it both ways. You cannot represent them and represent the aspirations of the working class people on low wages in places like Hartlepool, Teesside, and indeed the Northwest, and who have very, very different aspirations themselves. Rod, tell us a little about yourself. Many of our readers will have read you for many years in The Spectator. You were born in, in Sidcup in Kent, the Abby, son of a train Abby driver. Wood, oh, actually, Abbey Wood, God, and what a difference that makes, eh? Crikey. Well, it does, mate. It's SE2 rather than Kent. Uh, <laughs> It's very important to me. Yeah, sorry, go but on, But you mate. spent a lot of your childhood in the Northeast, as we've said. How did you end up in journalism? What drives you to be a journalist? And how did somebody of your disposition, frankly, end up editing the Today programme? Yeah, no, that's a question I've asked myself many times. I have to say, I, it's I mean, a bit bizarre, isn't it? You must have been on really good behaviour <laughs> for about 20 years. Well, no, no, it's interesting. Within the BBC, you see, well, when I joined them, incidentally, my family's all from the northeast, Middlesbrough, apart from my mum, who was from Bermondsey. And we moved up when I was seven, and I've always considered the northeast to be my home. At the BBC, it was interesting. Almost everybody there was public school. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but not an enormous one. And they tended to appoint people who were very much like themselves to all the top jobs. But I kind of lucked out because it's also a very liberal institution. And so half the time they, they, they would look at me and think, Christ, we can't have him. He's, he's you know, a ghastly man. <laughs> and the other half of the time they would think, oh, we need a maverick. We need a, we need a get a maverick in little. <laughs> so, so I would benefit by this otherness. Uh, and it was anotherness. There's no doubt about it. You know, it, I was part of anotherness. Uh, and there, there were a couple of people there a bit like me, and they felt exactly the same thing. I was a member of the Labour Party at the time, of course, so that probably helped. <laughs> but what about as a as a kid? When did you know that you had ink in your veins and you wanted to write for a living? More than that, you wanted to explore issues and provoke yeah. for a living, which is what you do. Well, I started a school newspaper when I was 10 uh, in my junior school. And then I ran the alternative school newspaper in my comprehensive school, which was called The People's Banana. Uh, and and uh, I think the first cover was a teacher having his head sliced off, which, <laughs> which was very swiftly stamped down upon. Little, see me. Yeah, indeed. It's a hell of a lot better than the official school newspaper, which I also wrote. So you're in the BBC and they wanted to promote you to a degree because you were a bit of a maverick. But you became the editor of the flagship Radio 4 Today programme. What were they thinking? Yeah, I know. It was a bad decision, guys. It, was, it wasn't a bad decision. I mean, it worked really well. I loved my time at the Today programme. It was a brilliant team of journalists. I slightly tried to change the, the timbre of it, the, the, the tone of it, by bringing in people who, who came from houses which are in a street kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than, you know. rather than up a long gravel driveway. Well, exactly, yeah. And also bringing in... Uh, people who were on the right-ish a bit, just to give it a bit of balance, people like Robin Aitken, uh, Michael Gove, indeed, at one point. But it was wonderful, and, and and I thought my job was to try to get the Today programme to make more headlines from its political stories by doing investigative journalism, and I, I think we did that pretty well, really enjoyed it. And if after Boris Johnson has appointed and then sacked you as his advisor, 
the new BBC DG Tim Davy then scooped you up. What would be your advice, finally, Rod, to him? Do you want the BBC to survive? Do you think it can survive? Yes, I think I would like it to survive. And I think certainly for the first year, if you look back 14, 15 months, the BBC seemed on the way out. I mean, uh, we, we just had the resignation of the editor of the Today programme, Sarah Sands. Uh, the Director General, Tony Hall, had mercifully offered his resignation for the coming September. And the government, perhaps through Dominic Cummings, perhaps through Boris, had it in its sights in that they were going to decriminalise the non-paying of the licence fee. It looked at that point as if the BBC was truly done for. I think it's had a rather good, certainly for the first four months, pandemic, in that it kind of did do a thing of pulling the country together for a bit. However, uh, as soon as BLM came along, any notion that this was a fair and impartial broadcasting organisation disappeared out the window. And I think what Tim Tim Davies, it's got to be more than lip service. And I think so far, the jury would, would be tending in favour of Tim Davies at the moment, because he, he has shown an indication that he will get to grips with this monolithic culture that there is within the BBC and try to make it more representative of the people who actually pay for its existence. And he did that. I mean, his first, how the BBC got itself into that terrible mess over the last night of the proms and the lies they put out as to why they got into that mess. He yeah. sorted it out immediately. And I think that was the right thing to do and a signal for what he should be doing in future. But today's BBC wouldn't appoint a maverick like Rod Little, would they? I don't know. I don't, no, I don't think they would. I don't think they would. It is, it is, it is monolithic in its culture. And, you know, uh, it, it's also very, it's, to, to paraphrase Greg Dyke, it's also still at the, the top of the organisation very white in, in that they are obsessed with putting black faces on screen. But there are very few black people who are actually running stuff and very few working class white people who are running stuff. It's all people called James who did PPE at Oxford and are absolutely useless. That's the problem with the BBC. It's a real problem. Rod Little, thanks for joining us on Planet Normal. A pleasure. Cheers, Liam. Well, co-pilot Halligan, we've got to the 50th show and I think we've found the perfect citizen of Planet Normal, haven't we? Rod Little. I think, you know, why not cut to the chase and say that Labour's obsession with identity politics is, as Rod beautifully described it, utter crap. I mean, this is, yeah, isn't it great to hear that voice, that wonderful, wry, clever, clever person from a working class background just absolutely slicing through the pretension, and as he does in his journalism, not just making people laugh out loud with recognition, which is a great skill, but putting his finger on the angst of the age, really. I mean, as Rod said, the Labour Party is now the members really are metropolitan university lecturer people who despise the people that the party was set up to represent. So it's a fiendish conundrum. And as Lawrence Fox, another another straight talker, said to me when I interviewed him in London, Lawrence said that the British people are tired of being told they're racist scum. And that's been a theme of ours, Liam, hasn't it, on on Planet Normal this this past year, really. Uh, um, one of the reasons we got together and set up the rocket was to try and reflect what normal people think. I think that's right. I mean, Rod is one of our, I mean, I said revered and he, and he is revered. And, you know, the people that find him most offensive are often those who are quickest to read him when his column lands in The Spectator. 
every yeah. week. You can't ignore him. And in the Sun and in the Sunday Times as well. You know, it's notable wherever he turns up that he's the he's the grit in the oyster, isn't he? He's one of those people. He's just an intellectual omnivore. He's interested in everything. Mm. He he joins political parties not because he needs the structure of a political party to give him credibility. On the contrary, um, he will go wherever his logic and research takes him. And that's why he's such an interesting commentator. And I was just listening to that interview. I was just leafing through a volume called 10,000 Not Out, which is the history of the spectator, 1828 to 2020, 10,000 editions, of course. And it's worth just saying that the official history of the spectator says, little has continued to press at the boundaries of what can and by turns cannot be said and to push back against the top-down agenda of societal groupthink. And Fraser Nelson, when he was looking back on his first 500 issues, he confessed, quotes, I thought I'd go down with Rod Little, that he and I would drive like Thelma and Louise <laughs> over the cliff in the name of free speech. What an image. <laughs> We've come close a few times, but stayed, in brackets, just on the right side. And Rod does often sail very, very close to the wind. And some of the things he writes are often, I mean, certainly bending the norms of what's reasonable and what's acceptable, particularly in these censorious times when people are being cancelled. But I think that's all the more reason for him to carry on doing what he does. But it's only the norms of, as you said, a po-faced time, isn't it? I mean... These are very funny observations about men and women. And as Rod says quite correctly, in the communities he grew up in, you know, they they haven't got time to bother with whether they're a he, she or a they. You know, they've just got to do their jobs and then go out for a few beers and, and have a good time. I mean, that's the mentality. They're not at all interested in identity politics and these cultural issues in which the um, Labour Party's got itself into an immense tangle. And I, I think it's really interesting that the SDP, which Rod's joined, which, you know, it's a small outfit at the moment, but it's but it's of the left, but shorn of the utter crap. And I think there's going to be increasingly going to be room. You know, every week on Planet Normal, we're covering some new idiocy, aren't we? Like, you know, do you remember last week, Betty Boothroyd being forced to go on an online sexual harassment course at the age of 91? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot of pushback about that. And I think the next few years, we're going to, we're going to see a lot of popularity and growing support for the views that of which Rod is such an ardent champion. And just to finish, I'd say that I did joke about Tim Davy, the BBC big boss, appointing Rod Little as an advisor. But I tell you what, he could do worse. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages that you send each week to me and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming in. We absolutely love hearing from you and you get a chance now to win one of the coveted Planet Normal mugs. And that's not um, another name for Halligan. Again, I need to save space from you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, well, we'll get one of those COVID safe partitions put up in the rockets. You can be on the other side and don't don't catch any of my irreverence. Lot of emails this week, obviously on this hot topic about the GPs deciding to basically offer a, an online or digital service. This is from Elise. My husband, a GP for nearly 40 years, took his long overdue retirement at the age of over 70 last summer. 
His ethos had always been patience first, and he had run a very personal practice. Often he popped in to see chronic or terminal patients to offer them and their families support. As our long-awaited travel plans were put on hold, he has been working as a locum and seeing patients in person, much to their delight. He has even made house calls. This obviously has not come without risk to his health, being in the vulnerable age group, as am I. But I accept he cannot fulfil his desire to work in any other way. However, my GP required me to buy a blood pressure gauge, take the reading myself and send in the results before they would even prescribe a repeat prescription. Not acceptable. Have they got shares in these companies? My dentist and hygienist managed to see patients quite quickly. We wait outside either using chairs provided on the pavement or in our cars and get called in. Our temperature is taken in the doorway. This incentivizes working to time. My physio has also been seeing patients face to face. Neither he, the dentist or hygienist, would get paid if they didn't see patients, so if they found ways to do this as safely as possible. I think the present generation of GPs have become lazy and uncaring. They earn far too much. Perhaps if their salary was calculated on the number of patients they actually see, there might be a lowering of the drawbridge. Being a GP would no longer seem to be a vocation, but a step to status and cash for doing very little. My father-in-law was a very similar GP to my husband. He saw patients till he was 84, often just for a chat. Very, very powerful and a growing theme, Alison. We had a big Planet Normal post bag relating to the great post office scandal which we covered last week, and this one's from Martin. It must be a great relief to Paula Venels, the former post office CEO, that front pages and TV news bulletins are currently filled with Westminster tittle-tattle about trivial sums being spent on items such as scatter cushions. Yet a judge described the prosecutions during this post office scandal as, quote, cruel and incompetent. But I believe there was much more than incompetence involved. The actions of management tasked with overseeing the prosecutions have, over many years, says Martin, shown complete and utter contempt for the justice system. It's staggering, he says, and deeply disturbing to think these things happened, not in some totalitarian nightmare of a state, but in a country once regarded as a pillar of decency, honour and fair play. Some 39 convictions were overturned a fortnight ago, And Martin says this is the tip of the iceberg. The final cost of the post office will probably exceed £400 million, he says. The cost in damage to lives, livelihoods, families, reputations is incalculable. And we should, of course, add that Paula Venels, the former post office CEO, she has expressed regrets at these unsound convictions and she denies wrongdoing. Yes, Liam, and Planet Normal's going to go on pushing for that public inquiry into what happened to all those postmasters and postmistresses, all of them innocent. Liam, you might remember a few weeks ago, we had a fascinating email from Irene, who works in in oncology in the NHS. And Irene was writing to us about the difficulties of being able to travel to visit her sick father in Kenya. And she's come back to us now. A few weeks ago, I emailed you regarding my distress at the red list that has affected most of Africa. I did manage to get home and it was an eye opener. At the beginning of the pandemic, all flights into Kenya were stopped and movement to the rural areas was prohibited. Most of our old people live in the countryside. The elderly are always the first to be protected when we have an infectious disease outbreak. This gave the country a chance to get COVID protocols in place. 
When I arrived home after a week, another regional restriction on movement was instituted for five provinces that had high infection rates. This was because we got a death toll of 20, the highest daily death toll since the pandemic started. There was so much grief and sadness in the country at this high death toll, which, after coming from the UK, I thought wasn't too bad at all. But my parents informed me that this was a shock for the country. As of now, we have about 2,600 deaths. People want to say that Africa is underreporting. I have family members who are doctors and nurses, and there is no underreporting. We are very superstitious about death, and if people were dying in large numbers, trust me, there would be no way to silence that. My dad's hospital appointment went ahead as usual, and on one day we saw the urologist, gastroenterologist, and the orthodontist. There has been no break in routine treatments in any hospitals. There were special COVID units in Kenya that dealt with COVID patients. There is also a home-based and isolation care programme where if someone tests positive, they get healthcare at home. The first thing given is a high-dose vitamin C, zinc and vitamin D. If it's a more serious case, they're given a more specific treatment regime. This meant that hospitals continued to give routine treatment to non-COVID patients. For a country that doesn't have access to video and telephone appointments, there was no way to shut down general health care. There were no billboards everywhere reminding us to stay afraid, no one-way markings on the floor, just gentle reminders to be sensible. When you live in a developing country and every parasite, bacteria, virus is potentially deadly, we tend to be more stoical. On leaving the country before you catch a flight, you must show a negative PCR test, which can only be performed at approved centres. You cannot enter the area without a code. And people I saw were being turned away at the entrance. With all these precautions and low death and infection rates, Kenya was still put on the red list, even though I'd actually felt far safer and freer than I did in the UK. I think it's worth pointing out, Liam, after that really interesting email from Irene, that's an African country which managed to keep all its non-COVID hospital treatments going. And I would say that the UK has a lot to learn from Kenya. An incredibly insightful email there from some of our more far-flung fans in Southeast Africa. A quick one from Julian. With reference to last week's piece about the post office scandal... Isn't Paula Vennels one of Mark Higgy's shonky retreads? <laughs> <laughs> Julian's referring, of course, to the phrase used by the former Aussie ambassador on Planet Normal when he was describing failed politicians who get big EU commission jobs in Brussels. And Paula Vennels, as you pointed out, Alison, has had a succession of public sector jobs. Thank you both, says Julian, for providing a dose of sanity in this Orwellian dystopia. And as it's the 50th show, I just thought we'd have a quick update from our marvellous George. George is our informant in NHS England, not his or her real name. Uh, we can't independently verify the stat statistics that George gives us because they haven't been published yet. But George has proved remarkably reliable during this long period. And I know that Planet Normal listeners, as Liam and I, are, are very grateful for this marvellous insight into how the pandemic's going. So, Liam Halligan, co-pilot, 50th edition of Planet Normal, officially down to 1% COVID occupancy. Hey. Hospitals have just slightly over 1,000 COVID inpatients as of 
8 a.m. yesterday. That was Tuesday. The numbers look extremely good on all indicators, although the long weekend affects discharges. So they may look even better on Thursday. We should have fewer than 1,000 COVID inpatients by the time planet normal airs, possibly even today. But the numbers don't update until early afternoon. So that's a really wonderful piece of good cheer from George on our 50th edition. And a tribute to George, who does, of course, put his or her career at risk by feeding us stats that are collected and paid for in the name of the public, which we then help to put into the public domain. And finally, from me, a couple of recent reviews on Apple Podcasts, one from Joe. The recommendation to visit Planet Normal spread through our entire family, including our 77-year-old mother, who's now a big fan. At a time when travel isn't permitted, our weekly trip to Planet Normal has been a treat for us all. And one from Max. I'm new to podcasting, but delighted to have found the informative, interesting and often amusing. Talking about me, not you. (laughs) Planet Normal. And I'll be spreading the word, says Max. Thank you for being a platform of reason and lifting my spirits. That's me again. In these very disturbing times, I've gone right back to last year's liftoff and I'm binge listening to your brilliant guests. And if you like Planet Normal, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to us. That really helps others to find us so our Planet Normal family can grow. Just thought I'd end with two rather lovely ones, Liam. This is from Nicholas. Dear co-pilots, thank you so much for all your programmes throughout lockdown. My wife and I have so much enjoyed snuggling together under the duvet, listening to some great discussions and speakers. Where is George going to keep their planet normal mug? Good question. Presumably not in the cupboard at work. An anonymity blown. (laughs) Keep it up, but please don't overdo the current obsession with feelings. We need resilience and balance. Best way, in our view, is adhere to and promote a moral code in all aspects of life, home, work and play. Help others and finally help yourself. Joy, as we were taught at Sunday school, helping others. You yourself have so much to offer and help in all walks of life. Warmest best wishes. And finally, this is from Daisy May, in the light of the GPs going virtual. I can only imagine what my FaceTime appointment with my gynecologist will be like. Ew. God. (laughs) On that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our 50th week in our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my call. It's Martin. Yeah. So send us your postal address, Martin, and you'll get as rare as hen's teeth Planet Normal mug. Forget your Crackerjack pencil and your Blue Peter badge. A Planet Normal mug is what you need, so keep those emails coming. Co-pilot Halligan and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released, between 11am and 12 noon. We'll put the link to that article in the episode description or just go to www.telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Thanks again, guys, for that lovely tribute at the top of the show. So stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's happy 50th goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 